0: Hello and welcome to the podcast for Neighborhood Church. This message was given by Larry Bold. Find your sermon outline there in your bulletin. And let's open our Bibles to the book of James. The book of James, if you're using that book rack Bible in front of you, you'll find that on page 1884. Everybody's Bible open, please. We love scripture. We love studying God's word here at Neighborhood Church. So we're in week three of a Lenten series. How are you guys doing out there? Well, Lent is kind of a time where we examine ourselves. We think about our lives. We probe a little bit. We slow down. We give up some things so that we can go after more important things. It's a time to prepare our hearts, practice some spiritual disciplines, devote more time to Scripture and prayer. We're leading up to the passion of the Christ, the week where we celebrate Christ going to the cross. And so often we give such little attention to that. So we began this Lenten series three Sundays ago and we're asking the question, what needs to change in our lives? What do we need to get rid of in order to go after some more important things? What are some trigger mechanisms that we can let go of for a period of time just to remind ourselves that There's maybe some new habits that need to be developed. On our website, we have daily Lenten readings. We hope you'll read. They follow the sermon week to week so you can kind of track with the theme week to week and interface with the scripture on a daily basis. Hope you're doing that. We also have a prayer wall out there next to our prayer room up on the upper lobby area. And have you left a request there that others might be able to pick up and open that request and be praying for you Or maybe you have a request you want to put in that wall. You can do that. Or if you have a praise, you can put it on the side where there's praise. How important it is that we raise the level of Scripture and prayer during this season of Lent. It's not about just giving up a few little things. It's about giving up some things to go after more important things. We said the first week... It might be good to give up a food craving just to remind ourselves that we need to hunger for God. And we talked about fasting with prayer. In week two, we used the idea of giving up a media obsession. (laughs) That was last week. How did you guys do this week? I struggled in that this week so hard. We are so tethered to these little things, these little black screens that look back at us. But we give up some things like that so that we can go after times of solitude, silence, and scripture reading. Well, today we're going to look at one more aspect of what people tend to give up during Lent. And I've found that a lot of people just give up a a simple pleasure. A simple pleasure might be coffee, might be uh, sugar, might be ice cream. I don't know what it is. Simple pleasure. Something that finds a little bit of a touch that you enjoy. And I don't know what that would be for you. But the idea of giving up a simple pleasure is so that we maybe could do a little heart work in the area of our egos. Pleasure is connected to our ego. And ego is something that all of us have just a little bit too much of. One of my experiences as a high school youth pastor, I was probably in my early 30s, we had rented out a racquetball facility down in Hayward. We had the whole place for the whole night for probably 150 or 200 high schoolers. And I noticed that evening there was a young gentleman, probably 15, 16 years of age, and he wasn't interacting. He wasn't playing racquetball. He was just kind of hanging out, playing some, you know, video games. And I said, hey, why aren't you playing racquetball? Would you like to play? And he just looked up at me and said, well, there's really nobody here that could beat me, so I'm just not playing. (laughs) Now he had my attention. I said, what are you talking about, man? Come on, meet me down on court, whatever, whatever it was. And he brushed it off. No, seriously, I don't want to play. I said, come on, you know, I want to play. So so then the word went out through the whole building. <laughs> Pastor Larry's taking on this know it all champion, you know. So everybody gathers up in the rafters, like all of a sudden I look up. I feel like I walked into like a gladiator <laughs> dome, you know, it's just like this crowd of people. And the kid walks up to me and he says, I'll give you 20 points, you're served, serve. And he throws me the ball. Wow. Now, I was a decent racquetball player. I figure I got 20 shots to show this kid a little bit of something, you know? And you know what? I lost that game 21 to 20. <laughs> now, I guess the question to all that is whose ego was bigger? <laughs> the 15-year-old or the 30-year-old? I don't know. But I know my ego has had a problem all through its life. I love competition, and sometimes that's all I need to hear. But our egos are so easily inflated. By the way, my wife always brings me back to that story. She was there. She remembers it. (laughs) Ego gets us into trouble. And what we find in this passage in James is that it's good to deal with our egos. And let's read just, we're going to read verse uh, 1 through 10. You can follow along. Let's just see what it has to say. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That's why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Well, this is an interesting passage and I'm, I'm bringing the link to you between ego and pleasures, because we're all pleasure-driven. I mean, honestly, none of us like pain for ourselves, right? Uh, And we don't like to be without, and we don't really like denial. But Lent is a perfect season to kind of put our ego in check. You know, sometimes you walk into a nice hotel or a nice restaurant, and they have a place to check your coats. I think it would also be great if there was a place to check our egos, if we were just reminded when we came into a public place when we were going to interact with people that, you know, there's something about taking off what I want and my dreams and my goals and my desires and all everything about me and, and start looking for some other things, maybe what God wants first and foremost and then even to assist with the needs of others. I see three main movements in this text that we're going to walk down through rather quickly. The climax of it actually comes in the third movement, but let me just follow, let me invite you to follow along. In the first little paragraph, verses 1 through 3, we learn something about conflicts. And the conflicts that can often be traced in our lives around others is actually detailing a, a greater conflict that's within, and that's what in our conflict is basically our desire for pleasure, our desire to get our own way someone has said that the word ego is an acronym for edging God out do I feel validated enough am I given the importance I deserve will I have it my way will I get my way will I will I will I will I the Greek word ego the the word that which we translate ego also in the Latin simply means I I it's, it's putting ourselves first and in front of everyone else. Have you seen the bumper sticker, uh, honk if it's all about you? <laughs> Ever been in a conversation with somebody that it feels like they're saying, look, uh, enough about you, let's, let's talk about me. Um, that was supposed to be humorous. Anyway, maybe you've... <laughs> Maybe you've been in a conversation where it just seems like the focus is on the other person, and you're kind of wondering, where do I get in here? That shows that we all have really fragile egos. We don't like it when people damage that, and we're easily damaged. Now, what this little section up at the top, verses 1 through 3, shows us is that this desire for pleasure is both destructive and deadly. It can be, anyway, in our lives, destructive and deadly. Notice the words there, fights and quarrels. Are you in conflict with anybody around you today? Someone in your family, maybe multiple people in your family, maybe people in your neighborhood, maybe someone in society, someone you work with. Where there's conflict, there's likely to be this under, uh, underlining problem of ego. That's what, that's what James is suggesting here. And in verse 2, he says we actually kill. Now, that's hyperbole because... It's doubtful that any of us have actually murdered somebody this week because they stepped on our ego, let's hope anyway. But, but if this is true, what this is saying is that we actually have. We've hated somebody. We've not liked what they've done to us. We've grumbled in our spirit because they've stepped on us a little bit. And James says, you're actually killing people in that. We wonder how many people we've <laughs> mowed over this week because our, our ego got stepped on. Like little children having a temper tantrum, so we fight and quarrel until we get our way. Think of the conflict that you're having today, right now. Someone going on right now with something in their lives. Um, and if you feel that, that you've been stepped on a little bit too much, you may be already devising a plan to step on somebody else. Now, while some of our desires are innocent, left to themselves, they can become idolatrous in our lives. And that's what this passage is about. None of us are immune from the cravings of the world that cause us to pursue things like social pleasures, or substance pleasures, or sexual pleasures, or stuff pleasures, This battle that's within us stems from, look at it again in verse 1, from the desires that battle within our desires. In fact, that word desire in verse 1 is actually from the word in the Greek which we translate hedonism. The word is hedonon. It's a pleasure-seeking life. In fact, it says at the end of verse 3 that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, what I've noticed is that these pleasures, and according to James 1, 1 through 3, these can be destructive. They can become idolatrous in our lives. But it's also true, verse 2b through verse 3, that this desire can be instructive in our lives. Not just destructive, but instructive. And James says, he says, we don't have because we have not asked God. You see, everything in our lives, whatever desire we have, Think about this for a minute. Whatever desire we have probably can be traced back to something very legitimate that God desires for us. But because of our sin natures, the problem we have is that we go about those things, we go after those things in the wrong way, right? So we get into trouble because we're not really honoring God with the way we go after these things. So there's there's this issue that we've got to kind of figure out and what what James is saying is here is that one of the ways you figure that out is you realize that this desire should point you to the one who alone can satisfy your deepest need. And that's something you should write down. This desire, whatever desire you have today, even if it feels like it's a desire that's a little out of control in your life or it's not even a godly desire, I would suggest that you can probably trace a root of that desire back to something that God alone can meet in your life. And if you'll trust him, if you'll look to him and seek his way, not your way, you'll find out some beautiful things. In fact, that's what Jesus said when he said in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you, right? We have this problem in seeking the kingdom first. It, you know, my little problem, I want Larry's thing first. That's, that's what, where my default is. What does Larry want? And I have to be reminded daily that I, I need to be pursuing my relationship with Jesus. And all of us together, this is a great thing, we get together once a week to remind ourselves that we need, we need to have a perspective that focuses on, on God and His kingdom work. Now you might be asking, you say, well how do I know if I'm really wanting something that God wants me to have? Well, I I don't know, I'm suggesting that maybe in this text what you could do is you could actually discern how good the idea or the pleasure or the thing that you're going after is by simply asking God for it and see how it sounds to you. You know, when you ask God for things, there's a little bit of a, you know, a little sniff factor there, you know, because if you're asking God for stuff that you just want, it's like the Holy Spirit in you goes, "Eh," you know, Sorry. Wrong wrong request. Let me give you an example. When I was a, a young high school kid coming alive with my relationship with Christ, I needed transportation and I, I had little jobs around the area and I needed to get around. So I told my parents I need a car and I began immediately praying for a sports car. That's what I, <laughs> if I want to be really specific, a Porsche 911. That's what I was praying for. And I have to admit, it felt a little weird to be asking God for that, but after all, you have not because you ask not, so I thought. But you know, my parents heard that, and the Holy Spirit heard that, and you know what I got? I got a bike. <laughs> so it's good to ask God for things, but it's also good to realize that sometimes when we ask, it's, it, we realize what we're asking for is probably not the right thing. Or, James says, verse 3, our desires somehow can power, uh, have the power to twist our understanding of prayer. We ask with wrong motives, James says. So even if we pass the sniff test and can feel good about what we're asking God about, God sees into our hearts and he knows whether our motives are right or not. And I can just think back on times in my life where I am so thankful that God did not answer the prayer I was praying at the time. Because my motives were not right. I was asking for things that were probably not going to be ultimately the best for me. And, and it's funny how time does that. You look back and you say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for not answering that prayer. It might have been a relationship issue. It might have been an investment issue. It might have been something that you wanted to do in your life. And you look back and you say, wow, thank you, Lord, that you kept me from that. That's how good our God is. So this first little movement here is just that there's conflict in our lives. It can be traced back to this ego issue that all of us have. And in that issue, God says, okay, you got desires. I'm the root of every good desire you have. So if you'll look to me, I'll be the one that will provide for you in the right time. Just come to me. Ask me. And come with a motive that understands that I want the best for you. Whatever's going on in your life, aren't you glad, beloved, that God desires the best for us? He's not wanting to crush us or, I mean, his sovereign will needs to ride above anything that I think is good for my life. And there are times I still scratch my head sometimes. I go, Lord, I don't know how this is good for my life. Let's just be honest. We pray that way sometimes, right? But we're going to still trust that God has a bigger plan. We're working in a we're working it out in a plan that's way bigger than what we can see. And I look around, I see faces of people this morning that I've heard your story, you've heard my story. We, we have wrestled with things where we kind of scratch our heads and we say, God, I don't know how this is good, but, but we trust your sovereign plan. But this internal conflict, now moving into the little second part of this message, verses four and five, the internal conflict can actually make us casualties of war. There's this battle that's going on, and James tells us that we have to be careful. Otherwise, we can become spiritually unfaithful, and watch this, we can pose as enemies of God. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Now, I've read some commentators that believe that this is not speaking to Christians, but I have a problem with that because back in chapter 2, verse 1, if you want to just flip a page back, it says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and then he goes on to explain some things. Chapter 1, we know that James is writing, and we believe, by the way, that this is the brother of our Lord Jesus himself, late conversion, wow, becomes the leader of the church at Jerusalem, And writes this letter to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. The twelve tribes. This is a letter written to Jewish believers. Ah, so now we have a little hint in terms of the interpretation of this passage in chapter 4. When he says, you adulterers, James recognizes that any Jewish reader would know that in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God's covenant people were called the wife of God. And the prophets often warned the covenant people of God that their behaviors and their habits and their addictions and the things that they fell into among the neighboring nations around them made them, in a sense, hostile to their, to their husband. They were unfaithful. So James is telling us, okay, now wait a minute, we're, we're under the new covenant, Our relationship with God is not defined by how well we do. This is not a works righteousness. Our righteousness is given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, correct? And under the new covenant, we have a righteousness that comes by faith not by works. And so we come here this morning and by faith we are made righteous before God. We've been given the garments of righteousness. But watch this. When we sell out to our ego, when we let ego have its place, when we don't put ego in check, when we don't live humbly before God and others and seek the pleasures of this world instead of the kingdom of God and his work in our lives, we start posing as enemies of God. Very careful selection of words there. We pose as enemies of God. We're not enemies of God. The enmity has been taken care of, but we pose this way. If I were to put a principle behind this, I would say there's two reasons why we do this. Number one, we've underestimated God's demand for loyalty in our lives. Now, because we live under grace, everybody say the word grace. Grace. Because grace has saved us, sometimes we think that it doesn't matter how we live. And that's not biblical. In fact, Romans 6.1, Paul says, The Apostle Paul writes, he says, shall we continue in sin so that grace might abound? And then he says, may it never be. So some of us have the feeling that because we are saved by grace, it doesn't matter how we live. That's not biblical doctrine. A biblical truth would be that I am saved by grace, grace keeps me, but God's very concerned about how I live. And he wants me to live in allegiance to him. He wants my heart to be totally, 100% given to him. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so some of us are a little too casual and we've underestimated God's demand for loyalty. Let me read through some scriptures that may be familiar to you and we'll put these on the screen just to save some time. And I'm gonna invite you to read a couple of them with me. Let's read out loud together Matthew 16, 24 and 25. This is Jesus' invitation. Here we go. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will find it. Well, I find that to be pretty stringent in what Jesus expects of those who follow him. Wouldn't you? I mean, if we're going to follow Jesus, he said, okay, if you're going to follow me, if anyone comes after me, deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Um, I like Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Later in that same book, chapter 6, verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's like this constant pull of the world in our lives for pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. We're pleasure seekers. And God says, no, wait a minute, my way is to seek the pleasure of the Father And in doing so, deny myself. Whatever my will is needs to take the second seat. I need to follow what God's will is for my life. Jesus modeled that himself. Jesus, the Son of God, modeled this principle of following the will of the Father. Remember in the garden? Talk about the passion of the Christ. He's praying. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks. He's praying so fervently. And he says, God, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is, is folding his hands. He's submitting. He's bowing his knee, to the, knee to, the, to the will of his Father in heaven. This is a picture of submission. It's, a, it's the rightful picture of anyone who belongs to God that we would, in the same way, say, Lord, there are things I wish were out of my life, things I wish I didn't have to go through, but God, not my will be done, but your will be done. And every time we have that spirit in our lives, we are, we are checking our egos Away, we're saying not my will, but the will of God in my life. I like what the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2.15. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, now look at what the world is described by John, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world and the world and its desires pass away but the man who does the will of god lives forever now if we're really honest we'd say that every one of us at moments in our lives as christ followers have these experiences where we where we see things with our eyes that we want and we probably shouldn't have them or we think more about ourselves than we ought to think. Like Romans 12, 6, that each one should have sound judgment, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sober judgment. The, the scripture is full of this, this checking our egos at the door and stopping from sort of letting what we want take precedence over what God wants in our lives. So we might have just simply underestimated God's demand for loyalty, and that's why we're posing as enemies of God. But I found something else. If it's true that sometimes we underestimate God's demand for loyalty in our lives, equally, we also at times underestimate God's desire for relationship too. And this is so beautiful. This is where we now kind of enter into the crux of this passage. Look at verse 5 again. Speaking of relationship, do you think that scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Envies for what? For you. He envies for you. This is a a little section in the book of James that is really hard to translate. The Greek language leaves a little ambiguity here and that's why some of your Bibles have some footnotes. My Bible has a footnote that God jealously longs for the spirit that he made to live in us or that the spirit he caused to live in us longs jealously. Only God can experience, God God alone can experience perfect jealousy without being in sin because jealousy is the right to occupy what is his own. And when he created you, he created you to experience a relationship with him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be in relationship with him. And look at the, distract, the distraction that's all around us, keeping us from that. I've got family members that I just feel like they're just blind. There's, there's people in their lives, situations in their lives, that just constantly distract us from seeing that there's a loving God that jealously envies to have full sway in our lives. And this is such a beautiful thing. For any of you that are rule keepers, you need to realize that the issue is not keeping the rule, the issue is having a relationship with God. And he jealously envies for that to be the case. And for believers in Christ, it's, this is true of us. And he's writing to Christians. How could I be a Christian and God envy, his spirit envy? Because there's things in my life that I so quickly walk away from his spirit in. I'm so torn. My attitudes, My, if you crawled into my brain, saw my thoughts, lived in my world in the most intimate way this week, you would see how many times I walked away or didn't stay close, didn't love or want the intimacy of Christ in my life. And if we were honest, we would all admit to those times. So it's a beautiful thing and I hope it's a a great reminder to us that he longs for this relationship. And so some of you might, might be thinking, wow, okay. I might have misunderstood God's loyalty, desire for loyalty. And I, and I certainly may have misunderstood God's desire for relationship. Does that make me an adulterer with God? Well, it means that you could be posing as one. But here's, here's the good news. Are you ready for this? Look at verse 6. But... He gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a quotation from Proverbs 3. It's an axiom all through the Bible. It's just something about pride and arrogance that God disdains. But when we humble ourselves before him, it's something very beautiful. And... And what I take from this, which I want to give to you, you may want to write it down. Going after humility, a life of true humility, requires grace. And here's the good news. No matter how much you might feel you're lacking in that, God gives more. More grace. Do you see that there, verse 6? More grace. More than his demands of true loyalty? Yes. More grace. More that exceeds his demand for my allegiance? Yes. More grace. More for even what misses in my life in terms of my relationship to Him? Yes, more grace. God's grace continues to be more and more and more in our lives. Therefore, here's a beautiful little definition of humility I've written in my notes. That by God's grace, I will willingly submit to His desires rather than insisting on my own. Now, how many times a week do I miss that one? Bunches. But if you want to understand what true humility is, that's what it is. Humility is by the grace of God simply submitting your life, willingly submitting to his desires over your own. And that's where some beautiful things happen. Now, Going after humility requires grace, but it requires also, and I love verses 7 through 10. This is where it all wraps up. It it requires some action. And I like action scriptures, things that we can just grab a hold of and see what they are. All 10 of these action steps, and by the way, these are all, you could write brackets somewhere in your notes. Write down, these are great Lenten practices. You talk about the core of Lent and what Lent's about, you're about to see what it's about. Everything that Lent should be about is right here. First, we must submit to God. you see that verse 7? Submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves. Such a simple thing. All these, by the way, are aorist imperative, which means they demand an immediate response. There's no calculation. There's no like when I get around to it. These are immediate. God's grace that I might submit to His will. I got a email this past week from a mother whose son actually a couple sons went to our youth group years ago when I was a high school pastor and she said in her email that she now lives in Florida she was out visiting one of her sons the week before and he had had his 50th birthday and um, she was wondering because he was asking questions about spiritual things and wanting to be baptized if I would make contact and I remember this young man I remember his brother I remember this family and I haven't seen this guy probably in 25 or 6 years. And so we exchanged a few phone uh, messages. I called this young man. Uh, well, young man, I think of him as young man. He's 50. Because <laughs> in my mind, I'm remembering standing outside by the bus, getting on, going down to Hume Lake or down to Ponderosa Lodge. So that's my mindset, okay? So, I call him, by the way, he he says to me, great to hear from you, so great to connect. And he goes, but guess what? I'm in the hospital. Well, his mother said that he was having some physical problems. And uh, so I said, wow, well, how long are you going to be in there? He goes, I don't know. And he told me a little bit about some of the nature of his physical problem. Um, Struggling with HIV for the last 16 years. Just tough times. So I said, well, I need to come see you great I'd love to see you so last Wednesday I went down to the hospital and walked in his room and there he was um, about 80 pounds a real life a life that has been really altered by so many things in life and I said what do you what do you want what, what are you looking for in your life he says I, I feel like I need to get right with God I need to get baptized I said, "Well, okay, great. That's awesome. Let's talk about baptism. Baptism is an is a symbol an outer symbol of an inward reality." I said, "Let's talk about the inward reality. What's happening in your life?" "I've gotten away." We had a beautiful moment to just go through some scriptures of what it means to submit to God, what it means to repent of sin. And I said, "What do you want?" He says, "I want I want to submit to God." I want to repent of my sin. And right there, we prayed. It was a beautiful, it was about a 20-second prayer. On his part, tears coming down my eyes. Tears coming down his eyes. We finished up. Man, this is awesome. Gave him a hug. I just felt bones. He said, I'm going to get out of this hospital, and we're going to have that baptism. I said, you bet. We'll do it at your house. We'll get your family. We'll get people around. The next couple days, I called him, called him Thursday, called him Friday. No answer on his phone. No answer at the hospital. Couldn't find out. I got an email from his mom. He took a a bad turn. Uh, Wasn't expected. Last night, 9 o'clock, he's not expected to live through the night. Rushed back to the hospital. Had a beautiful time praying with him. His wife came in, prayed together. Beautiful moment. I've been trying all morning to find out if he's lived. His brother was coming in from San Diego to have a little time with him, but you, I don't know. I don't know if he's alive, or really alive. And you know what? I I, I share this story, and this is why I share the story. Number one, because he understood in this moment of his life, he needed to submit to God. Submission is what starts a life of obedience to God. Submission is the attitude. The second reason I tell that story is because I know in a crowd this size there are people that are religious, people that have been through the motions, people that come to church on a regular basis, people that are are rule-keeping, Bible-toting, verse-quoting people who don't have a relationship with the living God. And I want to invite you into that relationship today. Submit to God. Secondly, Resist the devil. That's an action point, isn't it? How about during Lent that we just have our wires up, our antenna up. Every time he comes, we say, sorry, busy. We can't be passive when it comes to the devil's attack. He's everywhere. Number three, we must come near to God. And look at the promise, and he will come near to you. That's a great Lenten practice. The Christian life is to be seen directionally. Not necessarily in objective, like I meet, you know, I I come to the end of my journey. No, it's directional. You're either going toward the Lord or you're going away. Right here, right now. We're either going in a direction toward the Lord or we're going away from the Lord. We must come near to God. Number four, we must change some behaviors. Yes, there's some things in our lives that need to go, things that we need to stop, things that we need to start. That's why Lent is a great season to do that. Let's say no to some things to be a trigger point to remember some things we need to say yes to in our lives. Charles Spurgeon said, I'll get to that in a minute, better quote in a minute. We must change our attitude too. This is what it means to purify your hearts, you double-minded. Is there anything in your life today that seems to be an emerging contradiction to who you are in Christ? Purify your hearts. That's change some attitude. And then number six, we must repent with passion. Grieve, mourn, and wail, turning laughter to mourning and joy to gloom. Here's the quote. Charles Spurgeon once said, Our repentance should be as notorious as our sin. Some of us have great reputations as sinners. But Spurgeon suggested that maybe our repentance should be just as notorious. We should be known for being so uh, done with sin. And yet we know we'll never be done with it, right? I mean, we know sin is always crouching. We know the enemy is always working. But we can, we can be pliable, humble, moldable, broken before the Lord so that repentance and contrition is what is seen and experienced in our lives. And then lastly, the summary of this whole thing is that we must humble ourselves before the Lord humble yourselves before the Lord and what's the promise he will what he will what verse 10 he will lift you up anybody need to be lifted up today well so let's give up a simple pleasure just so we can be reminded to go after a life of humility let's go to the Lord right now Lord something about all of this that connects in deep places in our lives and may this gathering of people know that their pastor has the same struggles but thank you Jesus that you have overcome and thank you for the word that we've seen this morning that there is more grace. He gives more grace. Thank you Jesus. Lord if you brought someone to this service this morning that needs a relationship with you may they Be awakened to the fact that you have called them right now. They can believe right now. Confessing as a sinner they need a Savior right now. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, if there's someone here today that as a follower of Christ just sees contradiction in their lives and they say, Lord, I don't want to pose anymore as an enemy. I know I'm your friend. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm created as a new creation so I take these action steps really seriously today. I want to submit. I want to draw near. I want to resist the devil. I want to have a change of behavior and change of attitude. I want to repent and be broken before you, all of that, so that you in your time can lift me up. Thank you, Jesus. Speak to each one of us. I'm going to pause for just a moment. You know, last week we just had a little bit of a time of quiet and It was a life-changing experience for many people. So we're going to take just a minute and we're going to just be quiet before the Lord. And would you just listen for what he wants to say to you? And when you hear him speak in your heart, just say yes. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear additional messages or you're interested in finding out more about Neighborhood Church, please visit our website at threecrosses.org. That's the number three, crosses.org.